You're listening to the British GT Fan Show. This show is for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed or used in any other form without permission. For more information about this, please visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk or contact us via our social media at bgtfshow. Welcome to this guest special episode of the British GT Fan Show, fuelled by TCF Sports Cars, where we're interviewing SRO Motorsport Group's press officer, Tom Hornsby. The British GT Fan Show is hosted by Sarah Smith, alongside resident British GT expert Nicholas Smith, and Andrew Brightman and Gaz Jacobs of the British GT Fans. On this episode of the British GT Fan Show, we've got Tom Hornsby joining us. Now, Tom is the press officer for the Intelligent Money British GT Championship, as well as the Intercontinental GT Challenge, powered by Pirelli and GT World Challenge Asia. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hello, Sarah. Thanks for having me. No problem. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. All recovered from uh, from Donington and uh, getting ready for brands. So why don't we start off by you telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to be press officer at SRO Motorsports Group? Uh, well, um, my time in motor racing began uh, all the way back in 2008 when I started in uh, in PR um, and specifically in motor racing. I only ever wanted to be a motorsport. Uh, well, I only wanted to ever work in motor racing, um, but I expected to be a journalist rather than a press officer and just accidentally fell into uh, PR. Didn't expect to do it for very long, expect to go back to um, journalism. And um, here I am, I don't know how many years later, what's that, 12, 12 years later or so, and I think I've only ever done two pieces of journalism in my life. So uh, so something's obviously gone right uh, along the way. Um, and I started British GT, uh, being press officer for, the, for British GT specifically in um, 2015. Uh, and then sort of, Obviously, being within the SRO Motorsports Group, uh, you get asked to do other things and other opportunities come up. And then, yeah, 2017, when uh, Asia started, we uh, I went out there. It was a very similar group of um, uh, of people who do British GT, same management team, uh, and a lot of the same rules as well were sort of taken over there to, to begin the Asia adventure for SRO. So uh, I was in at the ground, uh, ground level on that one. And then Intercontinental came along uh, for me in... 2019 I started doing that one and um, that championships are absolutely fabulous the events we get to go to around the world and uh, really see the best of GT racing. So you said that you always want to be kind of involved in motorsport but more from a journalism point of view what is it that got you hooked on on the topic? Uh, I was a fan of motor racing from I, I don't even remember when when I when I was a kid um you know, my parents were really into it. Silverstone wasn't too far away. I think it, it was about 45 minutes from my uh, from my parents' house. So we'd sort of always make a point of going uh, going there every year. I think the first one I did was a British Touring Car Meeting in about 1990, 1991, something like that. That's my first memory of it. Uh, and then was lucky enough to get to go to uh, lots of other nice events at Silverstone, like the, like the Grand Prix, uh, you know, the DTM, FIA GT, um, and just, I just loved it. Any type of motorsport you can think of, um, you know, including bikes, including rallying. Um, if it had an engine and it went quickly, that was, that was good enough for me. So, um, it was, I always wanted to be able to, to convert my hobby or my passion into something that I did every day. And, uh, yeah, fortunately I was, I was able to do it. I wanted to, I originally fancied being a designer and I did work experience when I was, uh, you know, maybe 15 years old at, um, the old TWR engines factory in uh, in Kidlington, and then I did a did a week in the wind tunnel at, at Renault Formula One. They were literally on my doorstep. I lived in um, Motorsport Valley, um, and it was really from that that I knew I wanted to work in motor racing. But it just sort of I wasn't I wasn't suited to uh, to maybe that that side of things. And um, I, my best subject was English, so I just sort of went down the line of okay, I'm going to be in journalism. I'm going to be a motorsport journalist, and PR just sort of was a 
was a happy coincidence after that. So what is it that you enjoy most about your job as it stands now? Wow, that's a, that's a good question. Um, well, it's, I mean, if you look, if you expand it beyond the realms of uh, British GT, it's it's certainly being able to to see so many different sides of global GT racing. Um, you know, British GT itself is is an absolutely fantastic championship. I, I don't just say that as someone who who works for it, but as someone who is a, you know a genuine fan of it. Um, and actually, you know, we we really are privileged to have a championship like this with this with these type of cars this caliber of driver, you know, uh, factory drivers from all over the world racing in, you know, on your doorstep in Britain. Um, and, you know, obviously the multi-class element that GT4 brings as well. I think we we are the only uh, national uh, GT3, GT4 championship in the world. Um, you know, Asia, yes, we have GT3s and GT4s racing together, uh, but it, that's, a re- that's a continental regional championship. Nothing really compares to British GT in that sense. So um, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that, uh, but also the, the the ability to travel with SRO and um, and see some some amazing races and some amazing places as well. Uh, the the Asia Championships taking me you know all over all all over places like Japan and China and Malaysia, Thailand, and obviously intercontinental we go to the likes of Bathurst and Kyle Army, um, Spa twenty four hours obviously. Uh, so you. I mean, I guess the question is, what's not to like uh, about it, really? If you're into motor racing and and you like GT racing and uh, you want to feel like you can make a you can make a bit of a difference with it, uh, there's no there's no real better championship or organisation to be involved with than SRO. Oh, so you obviously touching on the GT World Challenge Asia, uh, which you said is is fairly new in the SRO stable. Uh, for those of us who are a bit more new to motorsport, i.e., me or a bit less globally focused in their motorsport enjoyment. Tell us a bit more about the series and what kind of challenges have you faced recently in terms of the having to operate through a global pandemic? Well, the um, well at the minute, we, we haven't staged a race yet in Asia this year. Um, it's fairly, it is unique actually within uh, the SRO uh, family of championships and SRO are, uh, you know, all over the world um, with with what we do, but Asia is is very has it's very specific challenges because of you know in Europe we're we're all part of the European Union still, um, and uh, you know f- travel is certainly less restricted or was uh, when that championship uh, restarted at the end of July. Um, the USA, obviously, with GT World Challenge America, it's one country, so uh, there's no borders to have to get around. Asia is completely different. You've got a set of countries there and, you know, ordinarily we would have been going to uh, four different countries this year, um, Japan, China, Malaysia and Thailand. Some of them have, uh, well, only Malaysia and Thailand have a land border. Uh, The rest is the cars have to be sea freighted. So you're immediately your lead times for different events are that much longer. The logistics become so much more important than they are in uh, in any of the other countries. regional championships with an SRO and certainly compared to, to British GT, you, you you can't just run a race weekend in China one weekend and then immediately go to Japan for the next. It, it, there's, a, there's a lot more to it than that. And obviously, now that we've, now we're facing these problems with uh, the global pandemic and coronavirus, uh, every country has its own ideas about how it wants to deal with it. It has its own uh, quarantine um uh, issues to deal with as well and obviously you're also dealing with a lot of um, amateur drivers who have got businesses to run and uh, you know for them it, it's a hobby it's 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 something they want to to enjoy and if it's not something they can enjoy then well you kind of usp is has gone so we're we asia does face a lot of challenges that that the other championships don't uh but you know we're still hopeful that we can do something this year with asia um, it just really depends on on how things are moving forwards. Um, I think the second part of your question was just talk a, bit, a little bit about the championship generally. Um, when we when we turned up uh, in 2017, there, you know, Asia had a regional GT championship, but it wasn't really at the level of something that SRO could bring with its uh, BOP uh, expertise and uh, a lot of the knowledge that it, it, it had accrued around the world. And um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, with management team that was running it is very much uh, used to this sort of customer pro-am environment 
and they were the regulations that we kind of just transplanted into Asia and it, it's been very successful you know we've had uh, sort of average of 30 cars uh, per event since we started in 2017 and you know GT4 is still quite a, a new concept there so the majority of those 30 plus cars is you know it's going to be GT3s on a you know on a bad weekend we've got 20 so um, it's yeah it, it, it's certainly a championship that was gathering a lot of momentum how things uh, recover in Asia uh, after the pandemic you know we wait to see and but we we remain hopeful that we can do some racing there this year so is there anything that you wished you'd known before starting out on your career path through to press officer um i guess i wish i'd known that i didn't know it all is 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 the best uh, is is the best thing i could say about that um i left university um when i was uh, i don't know what it would have been 21 um and i had a i had a degree in sports journalism because i that was how seriously i wanted to be a motorsport journalist i was mm. going to go there study something very particular to get me into uh into an industry that i loved um and i don't know you sort of leave university with a degree and you think yeah i've got this you know i can write i can do pr no problem at all and then you you join a proper working environment and all of that goes out the window. You've got to relearn it. Um, and you've also just got to be humble enough to say, you know what, well, I don't know everything and I need to learn things from people who really do. Mm. Um, and that's something I've, I've learned and I think I've taken with me and um, certainly something I tried to pass on to people who ask for, for advice moving forwards. But also, if you, you, know, you work in this industry, motorsport generally, not just in PR, but, but any of the guys, you go up and down the, the pit lane and working in the paddock, uh, you know, the, they're all workaholics. They all love what they do, but they all really put the time into it. And uh, you know, you 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 just you just have to have a really good work ethic with a with a job like this. I'm sure you do with an awful lot of jobs, but um, there aren't many people in motor racing who uh, can afford to take it easy. So uh, yeah, working hard and being humble are probably the two things that I would say I've I've learned the most. And what's the biggest assumption that people tend to make about your job? And what would you say to kind of set them straight? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think the assumption is that you, if, if not, not just necessarily with British GT, but um, if you, if you do do the, the, the European Asian world championship side of things, I think the assumption is it's a very glamorous lifestyle and you fly everywhere in the front of the plane and you go to five-star hotels and you see, uh, you know the country for a week, and then you do a little bit of motor racing, and you then go and have a beautiful meal somewhere. It's not like that at all. I often say to people, you literally, you know, see the the, the back of the aeroplane, uh, the airport, uh, and the paddock, and a little bit of your hotel room because you're not really in it very often because you're usually uh, working. Um, so the glamorous side of things, unfortunately, is um, is not what people tend to think it is, but. You know, if you were all there on a jolly, it'd be a holiday. And so, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a job. Um, so, yeah, I think actually that is probably the biggest misconception of it, that you're just always flying around to all these mega places and these, you know, you do go to some great places and you do go to some amazing race circuits. Don't get me wrong. And I'm certainly not, uh, you know, suggesting that I'm hard done by on that. I'm not at all. But um, it's not all fun and games all the time. It's absolutely devastating when you aim for Sepang and get snetters on, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know what? I, I I love I do love the British GT tracks, and I, I I look forward to Alton Park every year. At you know, obviously not this year with in, with Easter, but every year the start of the season for me. So to be able to go back to to Alton Park on Easter weekend, uh, it's it's absolutely mega. You really feel like the season is is starting there. Uh, you know, the difference between Sepang and Snetterton, yeah, it, it, a, there's a pretty big difference. Uh, it's about 20 degrees for a start, um, but it's usually just as wet. And um, actually, you know, these these big sort of modern Formula One venues, um, you know, they can be a little bit soulless, really. Um, Sepang, I have to say, isn't. It's a great circuit to go and, to go and visit. But um, no, I never... I, I, I never uh, take it for granted when I go somewhere, even you know, like Snetson or even somewhere like Rockingham, where we used to race. And I really loved going there. It had its own sort of personality. So, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it is chalk and cheese, but uh, it's it's still pretty good. 
on the subject of tracks from our little chat earlier before we started recording, I understand that you got to have a bit of a go around Donington last week. Well, a bit of a go makes it sound like it was uh, I was having far too much fun, Sarah. No, I did. Um, we did go around on the Friday. We were just doing a bit of um, tracking with uh, with my videographer, which ended up with GoPro stuck all over my car. Uh, but I'd never driven around Donington before, and I well, you know, you might as well when in Rome. So so yeah, had a had a sort of one or two laps around there. Um, and I, I was saying before, you know, I'd, I'd never been round before, and it was it's it's quite surprising, you know. You really do need to visit tracks and actually get on track if you can to really appreciate what it's like to drive a car around them because you're so used to seeing the circuits from the same camera positions that you've seen for 20 years. You know, the classic shot looking down the crane of curves. Um, and, you know, it's a really impressive part of the circuit. But when you're actually at the top of the crane of curves looking down and, you you know, even in your road car, it's very daunting. And, um, and it really does funnel through uh, the bottom corner there. And you just, yeah, you really get a different perspective for it and a lot more of an appreciation of what the drivers are faced with. Um, but also what the amateurs are actually capable of. We tend to sort of take... We have this misconception of amateur drivers. Oh, they're only amateurs. You know, they're good amateurs, but at the end of the day, they're only amateurs. You know, they're not as good as the pros. And that might be true. But actually, you know, the, the bravery and the skill that these guys and uh, girls have is is amazing, really. And and I, and anyone who ever gets a chance to even drive around a race circuit in a road car at reduced speed would, you know, would really benefit from it just to have a better idea of, of what these guys are going through. So... On to you a little bit, Tom. Tell us what you enjoy doing when you're not being Tom Hornsby, SRO press officer. Well, that's uh, well. The the thing is, the season is so long now that I kind of never not Tom Hornsby, SRO press officer, uh, because we finish. I mean, last year, for instance, with Kyle Army Nine Hour, we finished um, in at the end of November, and we were off to Australia for Bathurst at the end of January. And like, as I said, you know, that's certainly not something I, um, uh, it's not a problem, believe me, it's, you know, it's a great life. Uh, but to be honest, my, my hobbies are pretty limited. Um, I love skiing. Um, I've managed to get, get to go and do that once a year with a, with a good friend of mine who also works in motor racing in, uh, in France. Um, to be honest, I love just, just hanging out and chilling out and uh, being in the countryside when I'm not, uh, when I'm not motor racing, I live in London, but just going and not listening to a racing car or seeing a racing car, uh, for me is a great way to unwind, uh, especially when we, when we do so many weekends a year. Um, it's just nice just to, to be honest with you, do nothing at all. Um, hang out with friends and, uh, just catch up really. Cause you do miss a lot of, you do miss a lot of life and you do also miss, you know, some, some key things. I've missed some very important weddings um, that I should have been involved in and haven't been able to be. And you sort of look back on those and you think, ah, oh, no, I wish I could have been, but it just comes with the territory of, of what you do. Um, and you just sort of accept that and, uh, and, and move on. Speaking about the Intercontinental GT Challenge calendar, there's a lot of long endurance races at iconic circuits across the world in there. Are there any circuits you'd like to see included in the calendar in the future? Uh, well, speaking completely objectively and n- not at all as a spokesperson of the championship, um, I would love for SRO to go back to uh, the circuit in uh, Argentina around the, uh, around the volcano, uh, San Luis. Uh, there was a circuit I've never been to. Um, it was on the GT1 schedule in 2010 and 2011, I think. Um, and everyone at SRO, uh, because a lot of the staff at SRO are still involved today. Um, and they, that, that's the event they all remember and turn to as being their iconic sort of SRO moment. Um, all the drivers loved it. It was from what I've seen, it was, you know, absolutely fabulous looking place, proper trek to get to. I think it was, a, you have to take an internal flight from Buenos Aires to get there or a very, very long drive, sort of feeling like you're at the end of the world uh, when you get there. And of course it's, uh, it would be another continent for intercontinental. We don't currently visit uh, South America. So 
I think that or, you know, somewhere in Brazil, you could say into Lagos, but um, I think just somewhere that already has a bit of uh, GT heritage and is all is universally loved uh, by the drivers and the teams and the staff that went there. I think uh, San Luis would probably be the one we, we I'd, I'd love to see personally added to the calendar. Yeah, we can drop Spa and take British GT there. I don't mind. That was um, when we did the meet the team back at episode two. That was my my favourite track. I Quattrell's was fun, yes. It's just bonkers. A street <laughs> circuit around a volcano. <laughs> yeah, it's very SRO. You know why not? We might as well. They were they were SRO were the first to go to uh, to go to Zhuhai, the first the first organisation to have a an international race in China uh, back in I was ninety five or ninety six I think part of the BPR uh, Global Endurance Series. Uh, so they they are known for doing these kind of these these wacky races uh, in far flung places and um, but they don't really come any wackier or more far-flung than, uh, than San Luis. So, um, yeah, it's definitely the one I would, I would pick. Just a stunning, stunning venue. Hi, I'm Mia Fluitt. I'm a GT4 driver with Balf Motorsport, and I'm happy to be joining the guys on British GT Fan Show. Please follow them on social media at BGTF Show. So, COVID-19 has caused a lot of changes this year and i'm sure a lot of headaches and frustrations for you guys behind the scenes and all credit's got to be given for the hard work that's let us get some racing this year are there any changes that have been made that you personally would like to see carried forwards or other things that you think would benefit british gt in the future uh well yeah i mean first of all i think it's really important to just highlight the the work that uh has gone in behind the scenes um I think there's a lot of people outside of the sort of SRO bubble who just assume things work in a certain way or, oh, it's okay, we'll just do that and we'll just go racing again and everything will be fine. And Nothing believe me, that simple. <laughs> yeah, no, it, ne it never is. And this has really been something that, you know, nobody could have planned for or foreseen or had a contingency plan waiting for. And um, I just think it's really important to just highlight the work that uh, Lauren, Benjamin, Elena and everyone else outside of the British GT family within SRO have done to uh, to allow us to go racing again. Um, it has been honestly, it's been an amazing effort. Um, things we would keep and carry over, maybe lessons that we've learned. Um, a lot of the what well, like all, all of the current sort of admin paperwork uh, that involves, you know, teams signing on on a race weekend uh driver briefings um anything you can think of that's involved in the admin side of running a, a, a championship like british gt is now done remotely um we used to do everything on site uh you know you, you would you would sign drivers on manually with a signature from them in the you know before the driver's briefing and then we'd have a driver's briefing where the race director peter daly would uh sit in the uh sit in a room everyone listening with slides on a powerpoint and all of that is now done remotely uh before the event uh, so we now actually have a, a virtual driver's briefing uh before the event um and the the lack of paperwork now is you know obviously it took it took time to implement and change but that's that's been a, i think it's been a godsend to be honest with you and um something that will definitely take going forward um in terms of the stuff that people actually see um I don't really know to be honest you know the i think it, it we, we've obviously just had donington with this two hour for uh, and one hour format which we've never done before and um you know i think that's something that's that's worked and something we'll probably look at again potentially next year especially you know if we aren't able to, to travel to europe next year because of things are still uncertain obviously there's only so many tracks that british gt can visit in the UK, and to be honest with you, we already visit all of them that, that we can. We've obviously got one fewer event this year, but we've managed to make up the the race time lost from Spa uh, by adding that second race at Donington, and then the one that will take place that's the race that will take place at Donington in September has been up to three hours instead of two. So um, we've managed to keep the nine races uh, the same amount of race time, but we've obviously done it in a different way with some different formats um who knows that sort of thing might be carried over into next year 
Um, but in terms of what people see, uh, you know, on TV, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's really anything that we would that we would change. Um, I think everyone's looking forward to the point where they don't have to wear face masks anymore, um, and we can, you know, do podiums properly again. But um, other than that, I think it's, I think it'll be reasonably business as usual next year. Mm. So there is a huge focus, kind of worldwide, not just within motorsport at the moment, in terms of diversity. And in our last episode, we did start to touch on that a little bit. And we do have a, a section of our interview with Mir Fluit, which we didn't actually put out on the show, but we are saving for a special a little bit further down the line as we've got some more ideas about what we want to kind of do to get people talking about that. What's your opinion on how motorsport in general and British GT in particular can improve in terms of diversity? What else could we be doing? Oh, yeah. Um it's it's a tricky one for someone like us. I don't want us to sound like I'm about to pass the buck anywhere because that's certainly not what we're trying to do. Um, we have a very sort of specific environment where it's based on pro-am racing. Um, and obviously the, the, the am element does tend to come from a wealthier uh, uh, background. And, uh, you know, the, the way society is, that does mean that we tend to have a very predominantly white grid. Um, so it's going to be difficult for us to change that business model because it is so, you know, it's so, in, so intrinsic to the way customer racing works. Um, and I think it's probably going to be a generational thing before we start seeing, you know, more black and Asian racing drivers coming through the ranks. If, if there aren't, um, if there aren't drivers at the bottom of the pyramid, it's going to be very difficult for more of them to be represented at the top. Um, And I think that's also something that goes for, uh, for women racing drivers as well. I, you know, I don't, I absolutely don't subscribe to the idea about physical difference being a barrier to, to women racing drivers. I think it's just, you need a big pool at the bottom to get a very few at the top, uh, regardless of, you know, if you're aiming for formula one or you're just happy to, you know, want to do GT racing as your career. Um, we've obviously the last couple of years, uh, 2018 and 2019, um, we got involved with, uh, first of all, Charlie Martin in 2018 and then racing pride off the back of that in 2019 to, um, to promote, uh, great diversity, uh, within, within British GT and motor racing generally. And, um, you know, 2018 with it, it was, it was really interesting to see how much the team and the drivers embraced it without there being this sort of outside pressure to do something. And I was really, really proud that that was something we could do and not feel like we were reacting to something because we sort of felt duty-bound to do it. Um, And obviously, we did the follow-up in 2019 when Racing Pride was launched. Um, Charlie was involved with that. And I think uh, Abby Eaton, obviously a former British GT driver, she's also involved in it as well. Um, But going back to a question, yeah... um, it's, it's difficult for us to make a change. And I appreciate, as I say, that that sounds like we are, re- I'm passing the buck there, but just our environment and the way the British GT is set up, I think there's going to probably have to be a change elsewhere before we can really uh, tap into something and, um, and actually make a real tangible difference. But obviously it's something that I'm, I've been keeping an eye on, um, you know, really since, since, um, since the racing pride stuff a, a couple of years ago. And obviously now that, that conversation has now become uh, race has become more prevalent in that. And it's something that I'll certainly be keeping an eye on and looking for opportunities to expand uh, in the future. I think it's important to know as well. I mean, from my perspective, um, kind of being someone who's relatively new to British GT, um, especially when I've been looking around and kind of, you know, doing my bits of research and stuff. It is interesting to see actually there are a lot more uh, women involved then you realise, um, and a lot of that does seem to be a bit more behind the scenes and not necessarily kind of out on the track, but that in itself, even then, kind of the women races that have been out in the last couple of years, it's more than I expected to have seen. So it's not necessarily that it's a bad job that's been done or has been done. Um, I think the question is very much more kind of how do you improve it? And I think you've got a really valid point with it being at the bottom, you know, it having to come from the ground up. Yeah, um, just taking your point there on um, on gender, um, I, I did. 
I made a bit of a faux pas uh, uh, last week by suggesting that Mir was the, only the second woman to win a British GT race. And of course, she's not. I, I think I just had a bit of a brain fart the day after a long, very long day at Alton Park. She, she's the fourth. We've obviously had two women champions as well in Jamie Chadwick and uh, Flick Hay. You know, not many, not many categories, with the exception of the W Series, can really claim to have any uh, women race winners, let alone champions. So it, mm. that that's something is something that I think you know we should be very proud of. But yeah. also, you know, the barriers to racing they're not it's it's not just race or gender no. it's it, it's obviously the, you know the money that's involved in going racing um but british gt does provide uh, a more accessible route to to everyone who who might have some means to go racing you know i don't have the means to go racing but if you have something to spend on racing then then gt racing does provide you with an opportunity to not just do it and spend money, but also create a career out of it. And there are, you know, countless, um, countless drivers, professional drivers now, who have come through GT ranks or have come away from single seaters and created a very, you know, a very nice living for themselves, being factory or not even factory GT drivers. There's plenty of drivers out there who don't have a factory contract but make, you know, a very good living out of uh, out of it being their job within uh, within customer racing and then when you you know when you add in the people like Jamie Chadwick who you know yes she had that British GT championship in 2015 but she's you know what she's gone on to achieve from there you know has, has been absolutely fantastic to see I, I you know I, I take a little bit of pride in the fact that we were there in the ground level and I still get a lot of pride out of seeing that you know whenever Jamie gets uh, uh, some press coverage she's always referred to as a British GT champion and the first woman uh, British GT champion. You know, that's, that's fantastic for us. But um, yeah, as you also mentioned, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of women involved behind the scenes, not just working for the teams, uh, but, you know, our championship manager, Lauren Granville, um, has been working for SRO Oh, since before me, I started in 2015. Lauren, I can't remember exactly what year she started, maybe 2012, 2013. She's risen up through the ranks of SRO to be the championship manager. She is the face of British GT now. Uh, same with Intercontinental GT Challenge, uh, Sophie Peyrat, who is, uh, again, has been in SRO uh, since 2009. Oh, she, she was one of the staff that went to Argentina for San Luis in GT1 days. She's now head of what is effectively a de facto world gt championship mm. um and there, uh, patricia kiefer i could go on you know she is uh she's like number two within sro to stefan rattel you know these are big positions being held by uh, by women in uh, certainly in gt and when you look at when you factor that into motor racing generally you know within global motor racing um which is you know it's absolutely fantastic to see and proves there is no reason why um it shouldn't be the case yeah absolutely and i think as well the corporate world could actually take a lesson from that because i've worked for a few companies and there's very few women at the top yeah and um i it, it is it is just nice to see that if you're good enough uh you know you're good enough and um i've i've just been while you've just saying that there i was just thinking you know there's even more i, I think there's probably more women championship managers with SRO than men. I, I, I genuinely, I think I can think of one or maybe two SRO championships that are managed by, uh, by men, the rest are women. And well, probably tells you something there, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. So let's move back to your job a little for a couple of questions. What's been the hardest query that you've had to deal with? Uh, why? And how did you deal with it? God, that is a that is a tricky one. Hardest queer I've had to deal with. Um, I've been very lucky to be honest with you, Sarah. I, I think usually when you if if you if you're faced with something that's tricky, it's either because it's been an accident or it's political. Unfortunately, we've not really had any accidents in British GT touch wood um, that have required us to really have a have a difficult uh moment so may, may, most most of the time it's just sort of political stuff that arises from you know the ins and outs of of customer gt racing and actually if you're very honest about it sometimes you you tend to 
do a better job of answering those questions. Sometimes there are questions you obviously can't answer, um, either because you don't know the answer or because you just obviously don't want to give it. Um, but so long as you always, I think, give, be as honest and as helpful as possible, people will understand that, you know, you're basically in an, in an impossible position. Um, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything, anything more difficult than that, which probably suggests I've got a pretty cushy job, to be honest. And what's been the strangest query you've ever received? And our quick fire questions do not count. <laughs> strangest query I've ever received. Um, well, whether it was a query, I, I don't know. We um, a couple of years ago, we 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 did start just sort of joking around in British GT about running this circuit safari, which obviously they have in in Super GT in Japan. Um. And it was. It started off. It was sort of discussed for I don't know a year, eighteen months, and then one day we all just sat down and said, "Oh, well, you know what? Let's just make it happen." And um, being the first championship outside of Japan, I think anywhere, um, possibly with the exception of somewhere in Scandinavia, someone did say to me afterwards, uh, we were the first championship to run a circuit safari with a Route Master bus at, at Silverstone. Uh, when was that? Twenty seventeen, I think. Um, and it just goes to show that you know you. British GT is by no means the biggest championship in the world. It's not even the biggest championship in the UK, but you can do some funky things when people put their mind to it and uh, are sort of willing to think outside of the box a bit. It's still probably the, my favourite thing we've ever done at British GT, and it's something I would absolutely love for us to be able to uh, to do again. So, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe maybe when things improve, it's something you'll uh, you'll see again at a British GT round. Oh. I've got two questions left for you, Tom. Okay. Uh, before we move on to our fan section. So okay. first up, what advice would you give to someone who is wanting to get involved in motorsport or as has been asked by someone, how would someone get a job at SRO? Oh, yes, I saw that question. How would someone get a job at SRO? <laughs> Naming no names. <laughs> no. Um, well, it depends what you want to do. That's, uh, that's, that, that's one of the things, isn't it? Um, you do tend to find that SRO doesn't turn over very many staff because everyone really enjoys working for it. And I think a lot of people who come to SRO, um, you know, kind of think, how could I do this any better anywhere else? And I, I appreciate I'm on the SRO payroll and I'm a press officer. So you probably think I'm, you know, I have to say that. But, um, you know, I, I love working for SRO and I love all the different things that we that we get to do. So. I'm not going to be moving aside any time soon unless, you know, someone says your time's up, sunshine. But um, it's a difficult one to answer, to work work within SRO. It depends if an opening comes up and then what that opening is. To work in motor racing generally, you certainly have to be prepared to go above and beyond, you know, your usual nine to five because it just doesn't exist. Um, and if you are prepared to do that and there is a particular element that you want to get involved in then often it is it, you know timing is key being in the right place at the right time but also surrounding yourself and putting yourself in a position where you you're in the right place at the right time because people aren't going to come knocking on your door if you don't have any experience and of course that leads you on to the next question of well how do you get the experience in the first place um and you know you just you, as I say, you just have to kind of put yourself in the right place, be in and around the paddock, offer to do things. Um, you know, I'm, I, I don't like to say to people, come and do it for free because that, that just devalues what you're going to bring. But very often you will find that you will have to give up some of your time for free, prove that you can do a job. Um, and then when you feel like you've proven yourself, um, then you can sort of say, well, you know, can we take this forward? Can, can it become something more permanent? And if a team or an organization or whatever isn't prepared to give you that, then you need to be prepared to move on and use the experience that you've, that you've gained and maybe, you know, start again and wait till you find the team that is prepared to, uh, to invest in you properly. Um, and uh, yeah, hope ultimately that there's going to be a job for you at the end of it. There, it is a very niche sport, uh, motor racing, and GT racing is niche within niche. But generally speaking, if you're enthusiastic enough, and ultimately if you're good enough, 
uh, you will find something. I've interviewed a lot of people in a lot of different arenas and you know it's a question that comes up quite often but that is one of the most honest answers I've heard and the fact it doesn't work for everybody but determination plays a big part in that. Oh massively and as I say you can't underestimate how much uh, you know hard work does count but also um, just being prepared to give up a bit of your time to begin with can, can take you a long way um but as i say there does come a point where you need to be where you need to snip sort of snap out of that kind of uh being glad to be there and then switches over to being i deserve to be here and i should be paid to be here and if this if these people aren't prepared to pay me then i need to go and look for something that you know that, that does pay the bills hmm. so the last question i've got before we pass over to gaz for the questions that have come in from the fans is tell us something about yourself that might surprise people <laughs> oh what could i say that would surprise people um i have a deep loathing for bananas um like like a ridiculous um almost bordering on obsessional hatred of them the way they look the way they smell the way they taste and it was all born out of uh my younger brother mike who I know is going to listen to this. Um, so uh, he knows he's to blame for it. But uh, honestly, I can't have, I, I, they can't be around me uh, and they certainly can't be open around me at, at, at any moment. But I would also say, well, who wants that? Who, who would want an open banana next to them anyway? I mean, it's, it's horrendous. <laughs> I mean, were you expecting that sort of answer? I Probably no, not. I was not. So you can definitely say that you met the quota of that question. There you go. It is... Um... Useful information for Sarah, though, given how many bananas she eats. Well, it's um, also useful that... information that one of the paddock particularly likes banana bread. Oh, <laughs> don't get me started on that. Ambernoffy pie. Anything with a banana in is the devil's food. I was about to ask: is it is it is it, is it, is it just is it just bananas, or is it particular? Is it particular, was it particular bananas? If you know what I mean, because I can't stand bananas when they start to go brown. You know what I mean? It's oh bad. no, any oh, of them. No, any of them. And then and when people were like, oh, it's fine, just eat it with the bruise, the damn thing's oozing. Like, what's oh that about? What is that about? It's making me gag now. Yeah. <laughs> horrendous. They're horrendous. I don't know who would want them. You're listening to the British GT Fan Show, built by TCF Sports Cars. Don't forget to follow us on our social media at BGTF Show. Don't forget to check our partners, the British GT Fans, on social media at of British GT on Twitter and Instagram and British GT fans on Facebook. Uh, so yeah, so we, we have some fan questions coming from uh, the listeners. Uh, there, seem, there appear to be some stories behind this, some of the questions, so we don't just want the answers, but the stories too, if you could, mate. That's right. Um, so first one comes from Car- Gary Paravani. Right. What is, what is your most embarrassing moment? Oh. Um... Well, I did. I did once do a pit walk with my uh, with my pants hanging out of the back of uh, my trousers, which which probably doesn't sound very embarrassing, because I mean it happens to everyone. But it was literally ten minutes of my pants on a uh, on a social media video, and because we I think we did it live maybe, and it was just there everywhere, um, and we weren't going to re-record it. So, and that's, and, and a lot of people saw it for some reason. And I don't, I don't think it was linked to the fact that my pants were part of the video. Um, other than that, I think that's probably the only minor blemish on my, uh, on my record for, for, uh, for a PR, but, uh, but there might be something else and I've just, I've just buried it. You know, you're going to have to send, you're gonna to have to send us a link to that video so we can share it on social media. <laughs> it's, it's been, it's gone, it's burned. <laughs> I was about to say, was it just shirt tucked into the pants? And, and, and then... something like that. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. And uh, they were quite jazzy pants as well. I'd oh just gosh. like to point out that nothing disappears from the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. if, you, if, if, if you have to, if you have to have your pants hanging out, you want them jazzy, don't you? Okay, so yeah. the uh, next question comes from Martin Heathcote. Uh, has Lorna ever lent you the keys to the safety car? <laughs> no, 
No, they they're kept um, they're kept very safe and away from uh, away from anybody else. Uh, but I have I, I was lucky enough in Asia. I drove the uh, Mercedes SLS AMG safety car there for some uh, tracking shots that we did. Um, because someone had to drive it, right? And only the, only the press officer was available. So um, yeah, I I did bomb round uh, Ningbo in uh, in that. Okay, is that? I'm trying, I'm trying to remember which, which which circuit Ningbo is. I know they got one out. It looks like it's out the back of some car dealerships, but I can't remember if that's Ningbo. So no, that's um, that's no. the one that's like got the steel mill or something next to it. I can't remember the name of that one. No, Ningbo is actually quite yeah. a quite a picturesque place. Went there in 2017, I think, from memory. Um, just at one of the one of these random Chinese racetracks. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so then we go on to a question from uh, Paul Hankinson. Uh, Whilst we all like going to Spa, is there another European circuit that we that we haven't yet been to that you'd like to see the British go to on its summer holidays? Um, well, all things being well, yes. Uh, I mean, there's there's plenty, but you obviously have to sort of weigh it up with okay, what's realistic and what's ri- ridiculous. But I think there's a there's a couple of realistic options that if if we could go, we we might. And you know, one of them, you know, Zolder British GT's been there before. Oh, sorry. Not Zolder, uh, Zandvoort is the one I'm looking for. Uh, British GT's been there before. It's just across the channel. You know, teams can get there pretty easily. Been reprofiled. Um, you know, maybe it's lost a little bit of bit of something. Uh, now it's an F1 track, but that would be cool to go to. Um, and Portimao, which is a, you know, I, I absolutely love it there. I've only only been once, um, but it's a that's a proper proper racetrack, um, and I think the the GT guys would absolutely love it down there. And of course, if you went in the summer, uh, everyone could stay over and have a holiday afterwards. Yeah, Portimao is a fantastic track. I, mean, I, guess, I guess you have to kind of weigh up um, the cost of getting everything down there when when when, when arranging this, don't you? Um, that's mainly sticking to the, the 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 northern half of Europe. Say would would is possibly um, more. Uh, uh, how do I put it? Um, is what the teams would prefer. Well, yes and Maybe. no. I mean, I, I, no. I think I think I think you could realistically do somewhere like a um, an Algarve uh, for for a similar budget to to Spa. But obviously, the thing that Spa has is a lot of the teams then stay out there for the twenty four hours, and so that then becomes the reason yes, to to do it. And also, you know, don't underestimate the fact that you know the the, the amateur drivers love to race at spa and you know even if it's just to say i've raced at spa you know that's a that's a big deal for them um so it would it would take a lot for us to leave there and we we, we can only do one uh, away trip a year so for the foreseeable future i think it'll be spa but you know never say never okay so uh we go to jacob Avery this time uh what's Ooh. your favorite cheese and do you like bmw electrics i guess and there's a story one kind of oh <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not a fan of BMW electrics. Um, I have a BMW, and it uh, it's, it's it's electrics are not what they should be. Let's say. Um, do I have a favourite cheese? Uh, well, in the immortal words of um, Stephen Gerrard, melted cheese. Uh, but uh, you could, if you were to force to choose a proper cheese, um, I would probably go with Comte. That's a good yeah. choice. I have no idea what that is, but I'll 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 I'll, I'll believe you. <laughs> um, this is where Andrew needs to join in and explain because he works in food and he knows different cheeses. <laughs> so our uh, uh, next question from Nick Smith, uh, which circuit in the UK would you lo- would you want British GT to go to uh, instead of having two events at Donington? In an, um, in an ideal world. Tom. Ideal world, yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, I think, you know, I've always loved the idea of going to Anglesey. Could you imagine GT cars around there with that backdrop? Yeah, I could, and I'm being cringing at some point. <laughs> well, yeah, I, exactly. But, you know, in an ideal world, I I think that that is a track I'd love British to go to. I think if it was a bit bigger and the paddock was a bit you know, more able to sort of accommodate British GT, then Knock Hill would be awesome. Um, everyone, I've, I've never been to Knock Hill, but everyone I speak to, uh, Jacob Ebery, um absolutely loves it there. Um, 
you know, there's some, there's some good candidates. I know a lot of people love Croft. A lot of people want to go to Thruxton. Um, but I would, oh, I think for the novelty factor, I would say Anglesey. Yeah, I mean, as I say, the, the, the thought of uh, the GT3 is rocketing into Rocket. <laughs> Um, actually, it makes me it makes me cringe slightly having Marshall there, but um, yeah, I, yeah, I can I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, uh, again, um, so some very good candidates. I, I thought Nokia as well. I want to do Nokia for the first time this year, but obviously COVID's kiboshed that. So um, our next question, uh, another one from Gary Paravani. Um, oh right, it's the Gary Paravani show, is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, have you ever met Five Star? No, no. <laughs> I don't know why he's put this one there. I, again, I think there might be a story behind this one, but I'm yeah, trying to think if there is five star. I don't think so. I I think that might be a Gary moment, to be honest. Uh, sorry, that one's that one's eluded me. Yeah, we were having a who? What? Um, I have googled five star. Is a British pop group formed in 1983 comprising <laughs> siblings. Steadman, okay. Lorraine, Denise, Doris, and Delroy Pearson. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the answer's still no, then. <laughs> I, just, I, I just about remember them, but I, I can't think of any reason why why it might be applicable. But there we go. Um, another one. In an ideal world with no global pandemics and no money issues, uh, would you like to see longer endurance races in British GT, say six or 12 hours? And if so, where would you want them? No, I wouldn't. Um, I think I think three hours, to be honest, three maybe four hours is enough for, for British GT. You know, at the end of the day, we we're a national championship for GT3 and GT4 cars, and there is a natural sort of uh, ladder for GT racing. And if you want to go and do the longer stuff, then the natural progression for that is to go uh, and race in Europe. And then you know, if you want to go further than that, then you can go and do uh, you know Spa twenty four hours or Intercontinental. I think British GT its current format of mixing those sprint races, those one hour sprints with the two or three hour enduros, is actually a really good mix. Um, obviously, we've got the second three hour race at Donington this year. Ordinarily, we'd only have the one at Silverstone because that's you know the marquee race. Um, but I think that's a, you know that's a perfectly good mix, and you know if you, you you want you want to leave people wanting more as well, right? I mean, we've. I think three hours is is long enough uh, for a, for a British GT enduro person. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of an endurance specialist, so you know, I, I I like my I like my long races, and I would like to see the British GT maybe do uh, a couple, maybe a, a little bit of a longer race. But I can see, I can definitely see where you're coming from. Um, I heard you speaking to Sire earlier, um, and uh, you said that maybe you got um some more some slight format changes in the back of your mind uh, about what going forward after this year um would you have another three hour race in the calendar maybe going forward do you think um i think it depends what happens with um you know the potential to go back to spa or somewhere in europe if we can't host that seventh event somewhere then we have to do something uh in the uk as we have done this year so you you, you would run six events and then you naturally start to think, okay, well, we've already had a two-hour race at Donington because that was part of the, the one-hour race uh, that we obviously already had. So how do you distinguish um, the next one? And obviously the natural thing to do is add another hour to it uh, because you those three-hour races do bring an added element of strategy that you know you just don't really see anywhere else. I mean, at the weekend, we were really lucky. We had, uh, we had Barwell and uh, it was Optimum, wasn't it? They both ran really long first stint and that's we don't really ever see that element of strategy coming into play outside of the three-hour races so you know certainly I, I think if we don't go abroad next year there we, we can't visit any other circuits uh in the uk they just don't have the infrastructure uh for us then yes i think you probably will see a three-hour race crop up somewhere other than um other than Silverstone, whether it's at Donington or not, you know, we're looking at the calendar at the moment. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. So can we officially say three hours around the Donington um, national circuit? So, you know, taking out the Melbourne loop and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably not, unfortunately, but uh, no, no. Is it, I get the impression you're not keen on the Melbourne loop then. Oh, no, 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 no. It was, it was, you know, just came to mind, really. <laughs> you know oh, what right. I mean? Like, just see, just see those... 
did, see we did think about it. We did. We did think about having, um, you know, distinguishing the two Donington rounds, but having one on national and one on uh, the loop. But yeah, you know, with GT racing like this, you kind of think, well, what's the point? You might as well make the best use of the full circuit. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, better to do the same thing twice than maybe just you know, do half-hearted on one of them. Yeah, I was, I was, I could just imagine the the, the GT cars just doing like touring cars do through the through the chicane, mm. you know, yeah. smashing, smashing both those curves. But you know, that's that's it, you know, it's a little bit of a fantasy. It's uh, maybe not going to be. There we go. So since Rockingham left the calendar and we've been doing the two rounds at Donington Park, the one thing about the calendar that's always and it's irked me, it's been an annoyance to me, is the fact that we've had two identical race meetings at Donington. This mm. this year, I think we've we've we found the solution, even if it's sort of one of the Donington's becomes a a two sprints in the future, rather than a rather than two two hour races. So there's there's something different at that circuit, and we move a two hour race to a different venue. Yeah, the the, the, the I think as I said earlier, the um the the format that we had for this Donington just gone was actually you know worked out really really well because when I mean, you look at the sprint race it was I, honestly I don't remember a better British GT race certainly the first 25 30 minutes of that race were outstanding it was amazing yeah and you wouldn't have got that in the endurance uh format um even with you know the conditions as they were or whatever there would have been pit stops because they wouldn't have been able to run the full you know hour on the wrong tires as you know a lot of them tried to do Mm. um so yeah i yeah, definitely see take, take your point on that the, the the question will come with do you if, if we don't go to spa then do you mix up the formats for uh for donnington we go to donnington twice because the drivers love it um and it's probably you know behind silverstone it's the biggest track that we visit so we can put more cars out um if they want to come uh, it just makes sense in terms of the infrastructure. Obviously, we're limited by the number of days we can do uh, on the, the the brand's GP loop and on Alton Park's full circuit. So that then leaves you with Silverstone and Sneston. And of those two, you know, you want to keep Silverstone as the big marquee race. So the natural idea is you go to Donington. It's just a question of how you then run the race or races on that particular weekend. And you know, as you said, it, I think that we 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 hit on something last weekend that. Um, we will definitely look at revisiting if we can't uh, go abroad. One of one of the the minor bonuses of the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, exactly. So last up, Tom, we've got our quick fire questions. Now you've had these in advance, so you have had a little bit of time to think about them. Yeah. So we'll crack on. So first up, the best and worst cars that you've driven. Well, okay. Um, I was lucky enough to once park, and I, I do need to stress park, a Ferrari 488. Um, and I, I, I think I moved it probably 10 meters. So if you class that as like the best car I've ever driven, I did technically drive it, but I also you know didn't really, I just sort of parked it. Um, so if you sort of take that one aside, the best car I've ever driven is actually a Lotus Elise. It's just like a little go-kart, it's just on rails and, um, you know, I've I've driven a few nice cars just through the job, but that one's the one that always sticks in my mind. And the worst? Uh, she's going to hate me for saying this, but it's my girlfriend Suzuki Ignis. Um, I mean, it's great in London. It's kind of like we just sort of it just bashes around all the sort of local streets and everything, but it's it's horrendous to drive. Um, you're sort of sitting on top of it rather than in it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Okie dokie. So next up then, same format, the best on worst, but this time circuits. Yeah, so best circuits. Uh, it's, I always struggle to sort of separate these two, and, and they are both on the intercontinental calendar, and it's Bathurst and Suzuka. Um, Obviously, Bathurst well, and Suzuka, to be fair, are both an awful long way away. You've got to be seriously committed to go there if you're not working. But they are just both so absolutely worth it. Um, Bathurst will blow your mind when you get there and uh, you walk or drive the track because it's a public road um, for you know most of the year. I, I, think, I think every part of that circuit is a public road. There's, there, there is obviously some permanent infrastructure there, but 
you can use it it's just used as a road when when um you know there isn't racing going on absolutely phenomenal place especially when you look out uh from skyline at the top of the circuit and you literally see across the horizon and you can basically see the curvature um of the earth from up there is it is it's a magical place and australia is a mega place to go racing as well um the people and uh, the staff and the race teams they just all totally get it it's mega um and then suzuka I always use this phrase to sort of describe it. It's like walking into Gran Turismo. It's just, it's like nothing I've ever really experienced. Um, you see all the branding that you only ever see in, in Gran Turismo, all these sponsors that you've never heard of. Um, and, you know, everything's really bright and colourful and everything's loud. Um, and the Japanese, again, are just absolutely fantastic. Um, I would probably say as a circuit, I probably just uh on the side of bathurst but it's pretty close to be honest with you okay so what about the worst circuit so i went to ordos in inner mongolia uh once uh, i think 2010 um not with gt racing it was with a championship called super league formula and it is by far and away the worst circuit i've ever been to it was um it wasn't finished when we got there and I don't think it was really finished when we left either. Um, and yeah, it was just the whole experience of being there and being at this brand new circuit, which had obviously been, you know, constructed in you know very short amount of time with not a huge amount of budget. And uh, we then put a bunch of uh, V12, 750 horsepower single seaters around it. It wasn't really ever going to be uh, a match made in heaven, to be honest. But Ordos is one of those kind of, or was at the time, it was 10 years ago now, is one of those kind of trophy cities built uh, built in China to sort of show off their their wealth and their uh, their ability. And it was it was a ghost town. It was, uh, there's, there's, I think there's an episode of Top Gear where they go somewhere very similar like that and they're just driving up these sort of eight-lane motorways and there isn't another car in sight. And you kind of think, oh, that's been staged. Honestly, we could have done that in Ordos. It, it, the places like that do exist, and Ordos is one of them. Next up, then, is your ideal three-car garage. So you've got a race car, a road car, and a play car. What goes in there? Okay, so I am a 90s kid, so uh, I'm going to take as my dream road car, like the the ultimate kind of pinup 90s supercar, which actually came out in the 80s, but I always associate it with the 90s. That's the Ferrari F40. Uh, and of course, it has to be in red. Um, just, just mega. Like if you see one now, it still looks like a spaceship. Uh, and I, it, that, that's, the, that's the poster you have on your wall when you're a kid, if you're going to have a supercar up on the wall. Um, dream race car. Uh, I was lucky enough to see it race in period, and it has always stayed with me. And so it's the McLaren F1 GTR long tail Gulf livery from 1998. Uh, the best livery on the best looking GT car with the best GT engine. It had a BMW V12 in it. Just absolutely awesome um so that would be my dream race car and then my dream play car which i suppose is kind of it's a, it's a bit of an open-ended question really so i suppose it's also a bit of a dream race car would actually be colin mccray's subaru impreza from uh 98 i was a massive colin mccray fan he was he was like my idol along with uh along with damon hill so um I'd have to have his uh, Impreza. I still sort of long for a for a for a late nineties Impreza in blue with gold wheels for the road. But uh, if I could have his uh, his five 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 rally car, that would be uh, that would be amazing. That's perfectly acceptable because I mean the concept of the play car is something you can take out and have a have a bash on on a Saturday when you're not working. But uh, rally yeah. cars road legal. Oh uh, yeah, there you go. Covering all bases with that one. Yeah. Absolutely. So the last question we've got for you tonight. You've been given an elephant. You can't sell it and you can't give it away. What do you do with the elephant? Because this is the one I thought the longest and hardest about. Um, so I decided that I live, I live just next door to Peckham, which as we know is like the hipster capital of, of anywhere. So I'm gonna let I'm gonna let the elephant loose on Peckham Rye, and just just let people sort of 
be with it. And it'll probably be the most hipster thing to have ever happened in Peckham, which is pretty impressive given, you know, how ridiculously hipster it is. I mean, they've got a they've got a bar on in a multi-story car park. So, you know, a, an elephant on the rye on, in the park, that's 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 one up, I think. Pretty hipster. Can you let it loose? You did say I couldn't give it away. Is that technically let, giving it away or would it would it come home or how would it work? I suppose you could. I mean, you've got to keep it and care for it, haven't you? And so you're, oh. you're you're the one that's got to feed it and muck out the back garden. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. a shame. I don't have a garden. I don't know. It's difficult. If it's in Hipster Central, then they would take the dung and they would use it to grow their organic crops. There you go. And they probably keep the they probably make a little small holding for the um, for the elephant to stay there as well, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Are, are we letting him have this one? I think so. Uh, it's yeah. had some thought go into it. I, yeah. I, gen, I genuinely thought about it. Yeah, that's, that's that's good. We'll give you that one. What did it? What I I've missed. I missed the last couple of these. What did other people come up with? Um, oh. Mia Fluit <laughs> figures that she could use it to add a bit of downforce to the front of a McLaren. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, only a baby elephant. Apparently, there's a a drawing that her husband's got to illustrate the the amount of downforce on a McLaren Senna. And it's right. like it's like putting an eight hundred kilo elephant on top of the car. Ah, okay. So she she figures she'll do that in real life, and it'll probably help her around Orton Park actually. <laughs> mm. But uh, Rick Parfit, I mean, you've got to listen to that one because I spent most of it on mute, absolutely wetting myself. <laughs> there was there, there yeah. was talk of speaking to Mister Minshaw about getting some some parts made from Demon Tweak so he could. Um, Fit spoilers it, and, and and sibbies to his elephant and right, lights okay. across the tusks. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, it sounds very very Rick. Yeah, racing stripes. Uh, <laughs> Riding yeah. it into a gig in battle. <laughs> I mean, he's probably done it already. <laughs> yeah. Well, saying that, I think he's still touring touring France in his motorhome, isn't he? I don't know what he's up to at the minute, actually, but um. Well, he he, no, he, no. he phoned he phoned into us from the middle of the bloody Pyrenees, I think it was, or the Alps, one of the two. Oh. Uh, he'd been driving path force one around the Alps, roads around the Alps. I'm like, bloody hell, I drive an Arctic for a living, and I wouldn't fancy that. No. All that's left to say is thank you very much for joining us, Tom. It's been really good chatting to you, and we'll see you hopefully at the racetrack soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, Sarah. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate coming on, and uh, yeah, I'll I'll be back on maybe at some point next year as well. We look forward to that one. We hope you enjoyed this really insightful guest special interview with Tom. Don't forget, our regular episode is also out now with our review of the most recent racing at Donington Park and a look ahead to the next round at Brands Hatch. Thanks for listening to the British GT Fans Show. Remember, the show's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed or used in any other form without permission. For more information about this, please visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk or contact us via our social media at bgtfshow. British GT Fan Show is a Storm Vixen Creative and RPS driven media production. To find out more, visit our website at www.bgtfshow.co.uk.